Turn with me to page 1139 for Isaiah 49, verses 1 to 6. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me from my mother's womb. He has spoken my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Carl. I'm the pastor here at Trinity Church Unley. And it's lovely to have you here with us this morning. I say that, I think, nearly every week when I get up. Uh, this morning, with the City to Bay on and a big school service at uh, Concordia College, I really do mean that today. It is great to have you here with us. Thank you for joining with us. Over the last month or so, we've been working our way through the book of Isaiah, and we haven't been reading it verse by verse as a church. Rather, we've been looking at some of the big themes, the big movements, or the big ideas in the book of Isaiah. So if you've been with us, you might remember that we started by looking at Israel's desperate need for salvation when we saw Jerusalem as a city surrounded in chapter 1. We've seen what the king of Israel looks like. We've seen what God looks like as a holy, holy, holy God. We've seen some stories about what it means to put your hope and trust in God when we looked at those Three stories with King Hezekiah. And last week we started to look at this idea of what the comfort of God looks like. Comfort for people who are in exile, in Babylon, looking forward to a time where God will join them again. But no series on Isaiah can really be complete, I don't think, unless it spends a little bit of time looking at what we call the servant songs. There are four of these servant songs in the book. We've, you might have noticed that we're speaking about a servant today. We had our servant general up the front before. We saw then that God's servant is about bringing justice to Israel and justice to the nations. But that servant does it in a really surprising way. Rather than calling upon an army, they do it with gentleness. And yet they're not a servant in the sense of a kind of Downton Abbey maid. It's not that they are powerless. No, they have great strength, but they work through gentleness and restraint. Today our time together is going to be a little bit different to how we would normally run a service here. I'm going to speak twice this morning. Both of those talks are going to be a little bit shorter than normal, but I want to take us through two different servant songs this morning, and so I thought I'd break up what I have to say into two different Uh, sections this morning. So firstly, I want to take us through Isaiah chapter 49, which Katie just read to us then. 
And I want us to see in Isaiah chapter 49 the task of the servant. What is the servant supposed to do? And I hope as we look at this today, you'll see that the servant has two tasks. First, their task is to bring Israel back to God. And the second task of the servant is to bring salvation to the other nations, to the Gentiles. But before we kind of get into that, you might be legitimately wondering, what is all this stuff about a servant for? Why does Israel need a servant? I guess at times we'd all like to have a servant, wouldn't we? Someone who might make you that first cup of coffee in the morning, or someone who cleans up after you, cooks your meals after a busy day at work, peels your grapes for you, fans you with a palm frond, that kind of thing. Um, That's the sort of thing I think we think of with a servant. But in Isaiah, the servant's task is not so much to go about peeling our grapes for us. No, the servant's task is to help others come to know who God is. So at one point, Israel was supposed to serve the nations around them. They were supposed to be a light to the other nations. We see that in verse 3 of chapter 49. If you haven't got your uh, Bibles open, I'd encourage you to turn to there, to Isaiah Uh, chapter 49 and look with me at verse 3 where it says he said to me you are my servant Israel so here it looks like Israel is the servant in whom I will display my splendor I think what Isaiah the prophet is saying here is that Israel at one point was supposed to serve the nations around them by demonstrating what it meant to follow the true God They were supposed to serve the other nations by demonstrating what it meant to be a holy people. But there's a twist, isn't there? Because by this point in Isaiah, Israel as a nation, it doesn't really exist anymore. All of the prominent people who once were part of Israel have now been marched off from Jerusalem, off to Babylon. The cities of Israel are destroyed Jerusalem, that special city where God dwelt with them in his temple, well, by this stage in Israel's history, it lies ruined. It's been destroyed. It's kind of like Israel's been sent to time out. In our family with four very noisy kids, time out is a really necessary part of how we function as our family. So in our family, if one of the kids, normally it's only the kids, if one of the kids is refusing to uh, listen or... Uh, time and time again refusing to help in their tasks that they are assigned to do as part of their role in the family. If they're tired or if they're grumpy, after many warnings they might find themselves sent to time out. And in a sense, Israel as a nation has been sent to time out. They're no longer doing what they were supposed to do. Obviously in Israel's case it's far more traumatic. They've lost their homes But in a sense, it's time out on steroids. You see, for Israel, during their time in captivity, they know not only have they been sent away from the land that they loved, they're also separated from God. He's left them. He departed from the land, from their temple. And if you're there in Babylon as an Israelite, looking around, you must have wondered, nothing is working the way it was supposed to. 
how will God go about obtaining his good purposes of having a people who live under his reign and rule? How will God make for himself a people who display his splendor? How will God create for himself a people who show others what it means to live a holy life? And the answer, as we see, is through this servant. And in chapter 49, that servant, it looks like not the nation of Israel anymore, but more like a subset of the nation of Israel, a servant who's able to demonstrate what being a true Israelite looks like. And we see that in verse 5. So if you've got your Bibles open, let me read to you from verse 5 of chapter 49. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and to gather Israel to himself. For I am honoured in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. See, in these verses, the real or true Israel is the servant that brings or points the people back to God. Like a smaller set of the nation. Theologians call this corporate personality, where a smaller group of people or one person takes on the personality of the whole. But what I want you to see here is this idea of an ideal Israel, an Israel that does as it should, an Israel that is honoured in the eyes of the Lord. That's the true Israel, and its job is to bring the rest of Israel back into the fold of God. But it's not only about Israel, is it? Have a look with me at verse 6. It says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob, and to bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. See, the true Israel, the real servant here, is also to be a light to the Gentiles. That light shines in the darkness, bringing the good news of salvation to those who don't know God. I wonder how many people you might think make up the true Israel. The story and the message of the Bible, as we'll see in uh, chapters 52 and 53 in a few minutes, the story of the Bible is that only one person in the end is able to be the true Israel. Only one person is able to fulfill the servant's task. Only one person is able to display God's splendor and bring light the nations. We today, of course, know that person as Jesus. We know that he is the one who serves. He is the one who is the light to the nations. We know that so clearly because we have the Gospels today that tell us about what Jesus has done. He's the one who brings light into darkness. Let me just read to you a few verses from the start of John's Gospel. You'll know this well, so you don't need to look it up. Just let me read it to you. John says, The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, 
he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. That's how Jesus goes about bringing light into darkness. We're going to sing a great song now about Jesus. It's a song that reminds us that he is not just our servant, but that he is also God. In this song, it says these words. It says, All the glory to you, God, the light of the world. All I hope is in you. All I hope is in you. All the glory to you, God. You are the light of the world. Our third and final Bible reading for today comes from Isaiah 52, verse 13, found on page 1146. See my servant who will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer, and though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, He will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Thank you, Katie. Great passage, isn't it? 
Uh, what, I, what you'd like to know today as well is that if you have any questions that you would like to ask of what I'm saying this morning or of our passage, please feel free to SMS them in. Um, next week, we're not, I'm not actually going to answer those questions today, but next week in the last of our, our sermons on Isaiah, we'll have a good period of time where you can have any questions of what we've looked at over the last, what will by then be six weeks, uh, and it'll be a great chance for you to ask your questions. If you think you might forget your question between now and then, please text it into the number on the screen today, and I'll uh, write that down and address that again next week. This morning, we've all met General Mustashoff, I think was his name in our kids' talk. He was the commander of a large army. He was the one that had the nuclear armament codes for his country. You might not have wanted him to have that, but that's the reality. He is the one with a large arsenal at his disposal. And his job was to serve his nation by protecting it. Perhaps you missed the connection this morning. But what I want us to see is that those who serve are not always powerless. The servants are not always those who are weak and powerless. They can be like General Mustashoff, anything but weak. And yet their job is to serve. In Isaiah, the servant that we've been reading about serves the people of both Israel and the nations, and he's presented as both strong and capable. And yet, in order to really serve, to really effectively carry out his task, the servant becomes humble and vulnerable and acts from a point of weakness. God so often works through weakness, doesn't he? Think of some of the Bible stories you know about how God acts through weakness. You might like to think about the story of David and Goliath that I'm sure you all know so well. David, a little shepherd boy with just a few very smooth stones is able to slay the giant Goliath. And we see this idea of serving through weakness with great clarity in chapters 52 and 53 of Isaiah where the servant who we're now hopefully becoming a little familiar with appears as disfigured and marred with no beauty and no majesty. And yet from this humble position, he is the one who is able to achieve what Israel never could do. I'd love you to turn to this famous passage. If you haven't got it open, it's on page 1146 of your Bibles. It's probably the most famous passage passage in the book of Isaiah, could even be one of the most famous passages in the whole of the Old Testament. And that's for good reason, isn't it? Because it shows us how Israel's greatest need, her forgiveness, is achieved. See, these verses show us how that double payment for sin, remember that double payment for sin I talked about last week with the folding over the page? That payment for sin that exactly matches how that is actually achieved. And as we read through these verses together, I just want you to keep in the back of your mind Israel's predicament as they hear these words for the first time. They're trapped, they're stuck in exile, they're in Babylon. Imagine being there just for a few moments. You'd be wondering, I think, wouldn't you, will our redemption ever happen? And how will it happen? See, by this stage, readers of the book of Isaiah, they have little doubt 
I think that Israel as a nation will be able to help itself. Israel's never been able to do what it was supposed to do. They keep failing at being God's distinct and special people. They keep failing at being marked by holiness. They'd failed to be a light to the nations time and time again. And yet, as we read through the book of Isaiah, we get these glimpses of how God will carry out his plans to make the world right, to point people back to him. And here in chapter 52 and 53, we see how this all works itself out. The passage begins with God speaking through Isaiah. Let me read to you from verse 13 of chapter 52. It says, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations. And kings will shut their mouths because of him. What they were not told, they will see. And what they've not heard, they will understand. So in contrast to the way that Israel has acted so many times, here we have God saying that his servant will act wisely. But he's not, as a servant, what you might expect, is he, in terms of his appearance. He's no model. He's no sporting hero with a kind of muscular body. He's not your typical social media influence with perfectly done makeup and hair. It means he doesn't really look like the sort of king or the sort of Messiah that Israel was expecting. Rather, he's disfigured and he's marred. And yet, he's able to do what Israel never was able to do. He's able to be a light to the nations so that they might understand and hear the good news of salvation. Can you see that there in the passage? He sprinkles many nations and they hear and they see and they understand. You might remember back in chapter 6 where we heard Isaiah's commission to his own nation where they wouldn't hear and wouldn't understand. So here in these chapters, we have a servant that is able to do what Israel was supposed to do. In chapter 49, we see that servant being reduced down to a smaller group of people. It's no longer Israel. And here, we see with great clarity that the servant is just one person. And it's the servant par excellence. A servant who was despised and rejected by mankind. Servant who was familiar with with pain. But it was also a servant who was able to bring about real forgiveness because he acts as our substitute. You see that substitute in there? Let me show you how it works. I'm reading us into the text now, but I think that's appropriate. Have a look at how this servant acts as our substitute from verses 4 and 5 of chapter 53 says surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering yet we considered him punished by God stricken by him and afflicted but he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities the punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed see it tells us doesn't it that 
He took our pain. He bore our suffering. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Our peace comes at his cost. Our healing is a result of his wounds. This pain and this punishment, it was born for us. See, here we see the servant serving by being our substitute. I know that many of you are into sport. We have a lot of our keen sports fans out running this morning as well. My dad is a super keen rugby fan. I don't know if any of you else are rugby fans. I mean, he's really keen on his rugby. So last weekend, when the Wallabies played South Africa, I realise I'm in Adelaide and probably none of you knew that, but last weekend when the Wallabies played South Africa on Saturday evening and they won, he had to watch it again on Sunday evening just to make sure that they really did win. He's away this weekend, but no doubt he's not watching last night's game again. Um, They didn't win, I don't think. But rugby is one of those sports where you can really get hurt playing. And when that happens, when you're no longer able to stand up to the task of what you're supposed to do on the field, a substitute comes in and takes your spot on the field. They replace you, they fill your spot. Can you see that happening in our passage here? The substitutionary work of the servant? pierced for our transgressions, the sin that we committed, he's pierced for. Our iniquities, he's crushed for. He's our substitute. And in verse 6, we're reminded why this is needed. Not that there can really be any doubt by this point in Isaiah, can there be? But we're reminded of our unfaithfulness, wandering away like sheep, In contrast, I get you to flick over the page so that you can see verse 9. Look at the nature of the servant. He's done no violence. He's not spoken any deceit. He's the perfect example of what it means to walk with God. And so as our substitute, the servant is able to make an offering for our sin. That's there in verse 10. The servant makes his life an offering for sin. And more than just an offering for sin, the servant justifies us as well. Can you see that there in verse 11? And so we have these things about the servant. The servant is our substitute. The servant is an offering for sin. And the servant brings about our justification. The servant's work is to bring about wholeness and forgiveness and vindication and healing. And because of that, the servant is exalted and given a portion among the great. I don't know this morning if you feel a sense of sinfulness in your own lives sometimes, but if you ever have felt that, if you ever felt the burden of being away from God, then these words are words of pure joy, aren't they? Can you see that from Israel's perspective? Reeling from the results of generations of sinfulness, stuck in captivity in Babylon, Here they see how their justification, their healing and their forgiveness finally will come about. Not through themselves, but through the suffering of a servant. Now, and so naturally as you read these words, the question that we want to ask, isn't it, is who is this servant? Is it someone like General Mustashoff, a great military figure? 
Can we work back through history looking for the great military figures and try and find the one who is that servant? Is it some powerful king? Now, in a sense, yes, it was a powerful king. Is it a prophet? Some say that the servant is Isaiah, the one who wrote this. Others say, no, it's a better fit with Jeremiah. Some today see this passage still as relating just to Israel, not to a single person. Who do you think the servant is today? See, the New Testament that we have today in the Christian church leaves, I think, absolutely no doubt as to who the suffering servant is. I want you to come with me to Acts chapter 8. It's on page 1704 of your Bibles. And we're going to pick up the story of the spread of the gospel with a story about Philip and an Ethiopian eunuch. It's in Acts chapter 8. We're going to read from verse 26 on page 1704 of your Bibles. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of the treasury of the Candate, which means Queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot, and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading, Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to him. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture that the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? And then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture from Isaiah that speaks of the servant, and he told them the good news about Jesus. See, the New Testament makes it perfectly clear, doesn't it? Who the servant is, the servant is Jesus. And with the benefit of the Gospels that record for us and retell us the life and death of Jesus, we can so clearly see how Isaiah's prophecy played out in the life of Jesus. It was Jesus who was pierced for our transgressions, pierced when the nails went through his hands and feet. It was Jesus whose side was pierced by that Roman soldier's spear, our healing comes at the cost of Jesus' wounds. It was Jesus who stood silent before Pilate and his accusers, just as a sheep is silent before his shearers. Sure, Jesus could have called down a legion of angels, but in a demonstration of humility and weakness, he suffered for our sin, making an offering for it you're here today because you want to know a little bit more about who this Jesus is, I, I hope today you can see in this passage from Isaiah the enormity of what he did for us. He was pierced, crushed, stricken, punished, despised and held in low esteem. 
And yet in this passage to Acts, we're reminded that it's the good news about Jesus. It's good news for us today. It was good news for the Israelites because finally in Jesus, we have a true servant, the one who helps us and all nations. In Jesus, we have a person who lived a holy life, who set an example for us to follow and to esteem to. And in Jesus and his atoning work on the cross, we have real forgiveness and real hope. If you've been wondering, is Jesus really worth following? Well, have a look again at what Isaiah says the servant will do for us. Here is a servant who brings about our peace with God. His suffering and his bearing up under his, our iniquities brings about our justification. As a servant, he suffers the wrath and the punishment that we deserve. If you're just checking out Jesus for the first time or the first time in a long time, how, how good is this passage at helping you to see what Jesus' life and death was all about? It's no wonder, is it, that Isaiah 52 and 53 are such famous passages because they show us the need for a perfect, holy, sinless substitute. And with Acts and the New Testament, we can see so clearly that that substitute is Jesus. If you've been following Jesus for a while, I'd love you to notice something else in this passage, particularly in chapter 52. And I owe uh, this idea here to David Cook, who I listened to speaking about this passage in the week. David points out that not only does Isaiah 52 and 53 demonstrate to us today our means for justification and our, our means for forgiveness, it also helps us to see what our mission as a church should be about. You see, back in 52, chapter 52 of Isaiah, speaking about the servant, we read this, So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. See, here in the servant, we have a prophet, a preacher, a speaker who speaks to other nations and they listen. We're back to Isaiah's commissioning in chapter 6. Despite his work as a prophet and a teacher, no one will listen to what he has to say. Well, here with this servant, with Jesus, people hear and listen. And this is picked up by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 15. Come with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 15. I want to just uh, show you a little bit from verse 20. It's on page 1765. And Paul says this on page 1765, right at the bottom of the page, verse 20. Paul says, It's always been my ambition, it's always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundations. Rather, as it's written, and here he quotes Isaiah chapter 52, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. Now, here's the point. Paul's ambition is to preach the good news to those who will listen. And that good news is that Jesus' punishment brings about our peace, that his suffering and his bearing up under our our iniquities brings about justification, that he's our substitute. 
that he suffers the wrath and punishment that we deserve. And Paul's ambition is to bring that message to those who don't yet know it. That should shape our mission as a church today, shouldn't it? Our mission as a church here, why we exist in Unley, is to serve our community by bringing this great news about a servant who suffered on their behalf to them. As followers of Jesus, we have a story that is worth sharing. We have a message that's worth hearing. It's a message about a king who came to serve by giving his life as a ransom for many. Paul's ambition is to make that mission, that vision known. It should shape our ambition as a church as well. I'm going to pray that God would use us as his messengers and his heralds. I'm going to pray that we would be shaped by what we read in Isaiah 52 and 53, that we would live life as servants of our community as well. Let me pray for us. Almighty God, we thank you for the way in which you have provided for us. In our inability to follow after you, you have offered up your own son as our substitute. You've offered up your son as an atoning sacrifice. Father, we thank you for your gracious act of kindness and love and compassion upon us. Father, we thank you for what your son has achieved, for the forgiveness and healing and peace that his death brings about. And Father, we know that your gospel truly is great news. Father, we ask that you would use us as your people to help us shape our ambition that we would bring the message of the good news to those who don't yet know it. Amen.